Oh, that was good. You guys almost overpowered them. Very, very encouraging. Very exciting. Thank you. We, ah, we as a church, we love singing. And I am so glad that we do. It's, uh, it's even more exciting, more thrilling to do something you love and to know why you do it, to know the full implications and the full meaning behind what you do. And so that's one of the, 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 the purposes that I have this morning. As you heard uh, Rick preach a couple of weeks ago from Ephesians 5, just one of the, the reasons that we sing, which is to instruct one another, um, just was, was a joyful time together. And then after that, he said, so I want Aaron to come back up in a couple weeks. Um, he's down in Florida. And just try to put, uh, to put um, well, I guess to kind of give you a peek behind the curtain in some ways in terms of why we do what we do as a church and to also give you a greater understanding biblically behind this sort of cultural anomaly like he said, most people don't just sort of get together and then just start singing songs together. But we do every Sunday. And why is that? So uh, the goal is to hopefully grasp some implications and, and depths of what we do. Um, and I felt a little overwhelmed trying to cram basically like my life and ministry into 45 minutes. But, <laughs> but I hope this is helpful uh, to you, uh, and, and I trust the Lord to do that. So first off, to, to understand what we're, what we're about when we gather to do corporate singing at Mission Road, I want us to think about the ministry of song. What is at hand when we sing together? And so to do that, I want us to think in terms of, of audiences first. To think about this, to whom do we sing? All right, now, if we asked people this question, why do you sing in church? You would probably get a, a fair range of answers, and many would perhaps answer correctly one of the primary audiences. We sing to give praise to God, and that would be correct. God is one of the, and indeed the primary audience of our corporate song, God himself. Listen to Psalm 93. The Lord reigns. He is clothed with majesty. The Lord has clothed and girded himself with strength. Indeed, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. And then this, this shift into second person, your throne, singing to God, your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting the floods have lifted up, O oh Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their pounding waves. More than the sounds of many waters, than the mighty breakers of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. Your testimonies are fully confirmed. Holiness befits your house, O oh Lord, forevermore. And so we hear this, this praise, and this is not something that's going to be difficult to convince you of, that we sing to God when we sing together. But perhaps what I can do is say that sentence again and make sure you actually heard it. We sing to God. Okay, because a lot of the times it's easy to, 
I don't know, maybe there are certain folks who maybe walk in halfway through a song, and maybe there's sometimes, you know, reasons for that, and maybe we all do it sometimes, but you walk in halfway through a song, and you just sort of start just going along, and we forget. This is God. This is God. This is a privilege. This is a, this is a joy. This is a, a responsibility. And it's not just praise that we address to God. We don't have time to look at Scripture for each one of these, but we, we see songs of lament in Scripture. We can bring our woes and our sorrows and our difficulties, and we can pour those out to God through song. And we see songs of praise. We see songs of thanksgiving. To him who's happy, let him sing. Because, because singing gives voice to that. Songs of petition. If you have a need, you can sing it. And one of the audiences of our songs is God himself. It's truly an amazing privilege that our songs rise to the ears of the living God as an eager audience. That should also give us a little bit of a pause to consider how we sing and if we sing, or on the other hand, if we're not singing, who do we stand before as a gathered body with folded arms and shut mouths and cold hearts? That's a challenge. And I understand that there are so many intricacies and, and, and situations and circumstances that can, that can come into that. But remember the joy and the burden that we sing to God. And perhaps some would answer the question of why do we sing with a response that includes a second audience, and this is what we fully considered a couple weeks ago, the audience of the gathered church, the audience of one another. And we covered this in, in detail a couple weeks ago. Ephesians 5.18 says that we are to be filled with the Spirit and that one of the results of that is that we are speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart, to the Lord. So yes, we must sing with the awareness that we sing to one another. It's not even just like a byproduct of having somebody sort of be in the general vicinity and you're sort of singing and they're just listening. No, 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 no. There are songs where we address each other, even how we started. Hey, we believe. First person plural proclamation meant to encourage, to fortify, and to strengthen one another about the core truths of the gospel and our faith, right? That's singing to one another. Don't be bashful about that. If you really want to freak someone out, go ahead and just turn a little bit sideways. Start singing to them. I've often thought, I just didn't know how many people I drive away. I should have this side face this side. And maybe we will, especially since now I have given you fair warning that this is part of your ministry at hand in corporate song. We sing to one another intentionally and purposefully. And the fruit of that singing, especially with biblical truth as the content, is going to be conviction. It's going to be encouragement and correction and teaching and training and reproof and you hear all, all the things that, that Scripture does. We take scriptural truth and we package it in songs and we communicate it to one another in that sort of a way, all manner of building up. And again, on the flip side, perhaps then the, the lack of singing is a statement in and of itself as well. And I'm, I am just thrilled. We are a singing church. Thr 
thrilled because we love that ministry. We want to excel still more. We want to be aware of the, the implications even. I mean, Pastor Rick made it clear. A spirit-filled person, what do they do? They sing. I mean, in all, in all honesty, that's individually, just as we're going about life as well. For sure, it's corporately. But th there's a song in the heart of, an, um, uh, of a believer that, that should just come out in the midst of life. And we sing regardless of, of, of ability, right? We sing regardless of training, regardless of past, regardless of comfort with the actual vocal exercise. Yep, yep, I see some elbows going. That's right. No excuse. We sing not because of beauty of our song, but because of our internal persuasion of and by the person and the work and the ways of God. And as we are persuaded of and by the person, the work, and the ways of God, then it just, it comes out with an address to, to one another. <clears throat> so the third audience then, in addition to that, is this, to your own soul. And perhaps this would be less immediately a response to the question of why do you sing? All right, uh, li listen though to just some very familiar verses, but perhaps afresh. Psalm 103, verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. The psalmist sings to himself. You hear that? That's a very direct command to your own soul. Now, we, we in uh, the more reformed, conservative, don't even look at me like I'm a charismatic camp. Maybe we tend to say, you know what? I only want that which is third person and objective and majestic and grand and I already covered that, right? Like, that's a good thing. We want to ascribe glory to God. We want to lift him up in our songs. We want to tell him how wonderful we are. But we also need to understand that we, we have a ministry of truth to our own souls when we gather on a Sunday morning. And so it's, it's okay to have your soul be ministered to by song. You don't have to feel bashful about that. You don't have to even feel bashful about the need for that. And the beauty of it is that's part of the thing that happens when the one another's, right? When we sing to one another's, we find our souls ministered to, but we also can work in our own hearts. We can ask the Lord to work in our own hearts as we sing. Sing to God. But don't forget to sing for the benefit of your church family. And sing to your church family, but don't forget to sing for the benefit of your own soul. If you're discouraged, singing truth can encourage you. Let it happen. If you're, if you're feeling abandoned, singing truth can remind you of the connection that you have to the God of the universe and his sacred family. If you're feeling joyful, singing can give voice to those emotions that often may otherwise be 
just unheard. So minister to your own soul. And finally, another one is just this one, the unbeliever. The unbeliever in our midst. See, not all who gather on a Sunday morning are believers, right? We're, we're not foolish enough to think that. And we're thrilled. We're thrilled by that. And we often think, well, I want them to hear the gospel. And so, Rick, give the gospel. Rick, give the gospel. Well, sing the gospel. And when we sing the gospel, God has a ministry for us in that. Think, maybe it's, maybe it's our children. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's a visitor who comes and they've never heard the gospel. Well, singing is a powerful way to proclaim the gospel truth that the Spirit can use to work salvation. And there's an emphasis there on the truth that is contained in those songs. Gospel, scriptural truth. Uh, think with me in terms of 1 Corinthians 14, right? That the emphasis of that, of that chapter is Paul is concerned about the orderliness and the priorities of the gathered worship service. And in that chapter, he emphasizes truth proclamation as the highest aim in our gathered worship, hence his prioritization of prophecy over and against tongues in that context. He writes in verse 24, but if all prophesy, object of truth for edification, right? If all prophesy and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. What is the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation, let all things be done for edification. You see the reference to the psalm in the midst of all that aim of edification? Why? Because as we edify one another and an unbeliever comes in and enters and listens and hears, they're called to account by that truth. Our children are called to account by that truth. Visitors are called to account by the truths that we sing, that we proclaim. Songs are a means of seeing God at work as his truth goes forth. This is part, part of what we read even in Psalm 96 earlier, to tell of his glory among the nations, his wonderful deeds among all the peoples. And that's set right in the middle of a, of a psalm of praise. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, and make it known among the nations as well. One of the ways we can do that is by singing. It echoes forth into the ears of the listening nations around for their own impact. But again, consider what might happen what might be communicated by a lack of participation. Spirit-filled believers sing. Unbelievers enter, and the proclamation of truth and the engagement of the believers in the midst of the edification and the praise of God calls them to account. But what if you stand there, arms folded, lips shut? What does that communicate? Well, the unbeliever be called to account by that? I think not. We have an evangelistic ministry in the midst of our singing, and we all can participate in that. And we sing not, not just because it sounds nice. I mean, you guys do sound really nice, though, I got to admit. But it's not just because it's pretty. 
It's not just even because that's what we've always done. And the church just, well, got and I've, I've seen this happen. All right, got to sing some songs, so let's, let's pick some songs. That's just what we do. Well, we sing because God, through his word, has given ministry to us to do. To sing to him, to sing to one another, to sing to and for the benefit of your own soul, and to the listening world, the unbeliever around us. All right, so that's, that's a little bit of the, the, the theology, a little bit fuller. You hear how number two was really the emphasis of Ephesians 5.18. Well, this is, as far as I can tell, kind of the full-orbed ministry at hand when we sing together. And I hope that's even a little bit bigger than what you had walked in this morning thinking of or that it at least refreshes you and encourages you that this is a significant ministry that you all have. But we want to give you also a little bit of a peek behind the curtain, okay, in terms of just the method of our singing ministry to one another. And this brings up issues of style and truth, okay? It's pretty obvious if those are the four audiences and the four ministries that God has, that music ministry is more about truth content than it is about anything else. That's how the Lord is praised, truth content. That's how we lament, truth content. That's how we give thanks in truth. That's how we proclaim the gospel with truth. And that's how we edify one another with truth. Not style. And this is a crucial aspect of our expression of musical worship here at Mission Road. See, style, I, I think that style reflects, the creativity of our styles reflects the creativity of God. And with wisdom, okay, I don't think there is a musical style that is automatically off the table. Because, and I know we can debate this, but we're not going to because I'm the one talking to you. <laughs> I don't think that there is an inherent morality to a style of music. Now, there can be certain cultural associations with certain styles that should be accounted for and should be dealt in wisdom, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I get that. But music in and of itself and creativity and diversity and styles in and of itself is not, is not a moral thing. And there's a strength to having a diversity of styles that we as elders have decided this is what we want to do. Um, and we appreciate it here at Mission Road because one of the things that it does is it allows for so many more opportunities for musical servants in our church. So for example, if we chose one, you know, sacred style, okay, um, then only the people who could play or sing in that style would be able to participate. And then only the people that enjoy that style would ever enjoy the music here. And everybody who didn't enjoy that style would forever be wrestling with the fact that they don't enjoy that particular style. But if we work with the following diversity of styles, which we try to express here at Mission Road, which involves everything from, from orchestra and classical to orchestra and more modern to uh, choir, which ranges in terms of even within the choir, we do more formal uh, choir, and then we do more, even just like more gospel-y type of choir. Uh, we do days where we have, you know, old school SATB hymn sings, right? 
We do, uh, sometimes we do piano only. Sometimes, like today, we have a full band with all the plugged in instruments that make some people run away. <clears throat> but the benefits of that, the benefits of that are, are, are as follows. You, you get to enjoy your preferences, and that's fine. Enjoy. Enjoy the musical style that you like, knowing that eh, you may not get that next week, and that the next week, somebody else is going to get to enjoy their musical preferences while you learn to defer to their musical preferences and to prefer their desires above your own. And that we can also understand that then a fuller breadth of musical gifts can be um, appreciated and involved. I, I view it as a little bit of a microcosm of the church itself. Like how Paul says, there's a, there's a variety of gifts, everybody has them, and, and the beauty in all those gifts coming together is that that's what builds the church up. And so as there are a variety of musical, musical gifts here at the church, I love to take those musical gifts, even if they're as odd as you know, banjo or mandolin, or if anybody plays accordion, come talk to me. Like, we can use a diversity of gifts because they're intended even to, to build up the church in those things. So hopefully that helps you understand the musical style of the church. And we strive with any style that we do to do it with excellence because we think it ought to be done with excellence. And if we can't do it with excellence... We don't do it, okay? So a little peek behind the door. This is why we don't do like a lot of gospel-y type of stuff with me at the lead because I don't, I can't sing like that. So I can't lead that with excellence. You would not be served well by that, all right? And so there, there's, there's certain ways in which as God brings the right people and the right giftings, then I've, I've just been so encouraged to see more opportunities for, for diversity spring up. But for now, we appreciate a variety of styles and we seek to do them to the best of our ability to serve you and to glorify God. But it isn't style that guides our music choices. It's truth. It's content. See, I choose songs and then our staff discusses the songs based first and foremost upon truth content more than anything else. Okay? If a song has lyrics that serve one of those four goals that we just talked about, those four ministries, those four audiences, then I'll, then I'll consider it from a musical standpoint to see if we should bring it into our, our pool of songs. But if a song doesn't have truth content, lyrics, that serve one of those four main goals, then it's a non-starter. I don't care how good of a hook it has. And I also don't care how traditional or nostalgic it is. Because it's not about the style and it's not about the sentiment, it's about the truth. Because that's what edifies and that's what meets those four biblical goals. And so it's not even a matter of simply asking, is there heresy in it? The question is, does it function according to God's intention well? Do the lyrics address God appropriately? Do they edify one another effectively and fruitfully? Do they minister truth to our needy souls? And do they accurately proclaim the gospel in our midst? If the answer is yes to those, then we start upon musical considerations, which we don't have time to go into right now. But you can hear how answering those questions eliminates not only songs with heresy, obviously, but also songs that eh, maybe have a little bit more squishy 
kind of terminology, squishy intentions like, who are we singing to here? What are we actually saying? You know, as I, as I frolic by the stream and the moonbeam hits my face, what are we saying? Like that, that kind of a thing. The, the, the vague terminology and the squishy intentions that we're just not sure what's happening. Or even, even the theological meanings that differ from our church's belief. Those things are also weeded out by looking at truth content. And so when we choose a song for our repertoire, as it were, it goes into our pool, and then I use that pool to plan our services. Okay, and we talk as a staff. And again, truth is the primary consideration when thinking through our weekly liturgy. Okay, we are a liturgical church because we have a liturgy, which is just the order of service that we go through when we gather for corporate worship. But truth is the formative deciding factors for putting together our services. It's not pace. Some people, even books that I've read, have said, hey, you got to make sure and start happy clappy, bring them in, you know, something peppy, get the drums going, get people engaged. Uh, I, I even read one person who said, okay, so when Paul writes of the Psalms, the hymns, and the spiritual songs, that the Psalms are the happy clappy ones. They're the songs of praise that you, that you really get people engaged with. And then the hymns are, uh, are the truth songs, okay? And, the, and then the, the spiritual songs, and, and each of these has like a style change. You go from happy, clappy, celebration, to more staid kind of anthems of truth declaration. And then you get to the spiritual songs of intimate, close, individualized fellowship and, and even Revelation, et cetera, depending on which book you read. <laughs> but, I mean, obviously Pastor Rick preached this, and they're, they're just synonymous for using a variety of songs. We don't, we don't use pace. Uh, so sometimes we'll start slow. Sometimes we'll even start minor. Half of you don't know what I just said. <laughs> Sad songs. Songs of lament. Songs of realizing our need for confession, for a Savior. Why? Because what we're getting at is a flow of truth, okay? And not just a theme, all right? There's a difference between theme and flow of truth. See, theme is like, okay, boom, everything is about holiness. Boom, everything is about faithfulness. Well, and that's not how we necessarily go because I will look at, okay, what's our scripture reading for the day? What's our sermon text for the day? Are we doing baptisms? Are we doing communion? What's at hand? And we look at those and we say, well, how do we want to guide our people to engage with God, with one another, with their souls, with the unbeliever who may be in our midst with truth as all those things come together? Okay, so maybe, it, maybe it's a, a time of considering God's holiness, which flow of truth leads then to the recognition that, man, we, we need forgiveness in our sin. And then maybe the scripture reading, I'm just hypothesizing, actually builds into that. And then we sing as a response to that scripture reading an assurance of salvation because of the very character and the faithfulness of God. And so there's a flow of truth. One thing leads to another for the sake of your own edification and for the sake of the praise of God and the building up of those around. So the goal is, is, is flow of truth. And one of the things that in the midst of that that we have to try to carefully to avoid is the, what I call the Frogger syndrome. 
How many of you have played Frogger in the past? Ah, some of you need to get out. <laughs> Frogger, it's old school, I get it. It's this frog trying to cross the road and cars are coming and logs are coming and if you get hit by the log or the, the car, then you die. And so you're up one and then you're back two and you're over right and you're up three and you're back one and you're over left and you're, you're right. It's the frogger syndrome where you're just getting jerked around. Um, you can call it the ping pong table syndrome where you're just back and forth, back and forth. And so we desire to avoid that because we want flow of truth. See, sometimes people, when they just think, well, singing is just something that we do, it's like, well, pick some songs. You just pick some songs and then suddenly you as a congregation are like, oh, we're singing about this. What? Now we're singing about this. And ping, we're back over here. And pong, we're back over here. And we want to avoid that. And so we actually try to very intentionally craft the services to help you from one point to another in the midst of the services. Which is why sometimes uh, one of us will say, you know, here's why we're singing this song. Or in response to this, let's do this. And then other times we're hoping and praying that it's obvious enough that you can just track with it. And you all are smart, and you all are mature, and you all are, are, all are godly, and I believe that you can, but, but part of it is even just being aware that this is what we do, that this is at hand, that this is for you to do. So my encouragement to you is to seek to track with the flow of truth that hopefully occurs each week. Why did we sing that song before the scripture reading or after the scripture reading? Why, why did that song come before the sermon how did the pastor or elder preface that song with his prayer and help me engage more fully? So your awareness of those, these things will help and enhance your edification in our gatherings. You'll understand more how truth builds and stacks and your fuller understanding will, will result in, in greater goodness for your soul, in a, a greater appreciation for the person and the work of God, and fuller singing for the impact of those around you. So hopefully that helps you understand me and what I do and our leadership and even just our corporate worship services and our songs that we do. But, but the last uh, element here is just you. What is your role? It's not just to sit back and appreciate that. Oh, that was a good transition. Way to go, Chris. Like, it's not that. What is your role? The first part of your role is to understand, and hopefully this has been helpful for that, both Pastor Rick's sermon from a couple of weeks ago and now, to understand. And so I hope you better understand what congregational singing is about, but we also need to understand what it is not, okay? Often in today's day and age, uh, there is, there's, there's an exclusive equals sign between the word worship and music, and you'll hear this in terms of titles. For example, I'll take this moment to just let you know, I don't like to be called the worship pastor. So don't do it, okay? I'm one of the pastors. I'm not the worship pastor because there is no equal sign between music and worship because then you, by nature of it, you're excluding other elements from the concept of worship. Now granted, when we sing, we are worshiping, but it's not exclusively that. And that is an important thing to understand, that worship is a much more comprehensive term than just singing. 
We know the Bible wasn't written in English, and so you can't just take you know, your, the back of your Bible and look at the W's and say, what is worship? I'm going to look at these words here, and then I'll have a full understanding of worship. It doesn't work that way, because biblically there are, there are, there are actually four or five words in both the Hebrew and in the Greek that, that build into the biblical concept of what is worship. What is it to have a relationship between us and God and to, to, to live in response to him. And I'm going to have to summarize these things for the sake of time, but the nuances of these words have bearing on several things. One of these is our posture and position. Someone who worships has a posture and position of an inferior before a superior. All right, so I'm going to just take a cheap cultural shot and say the whole like Jesus is my homeboy type of shirt. Like those types of things, that's not really a worshipful type of perspective. Because biblically, the, the, the perspective of a worshiper is an inferior before a superior. And that makes sense, right? Consider God. We've been going for weeks and weeks through this, this series of the attributes of God. And it only makes sense. But it's also, a, it's also words of our attitude. And the attitude, by and large, is one of fear and respect. Hebrews tells us that our God is a consuming fire, and that never goes away. And so a worshiper has an attitude of fear and respect. Uh, uh, it also has bearing on our role, our role of a servant or a slave to a master. I teach a, an online class for the Master's University, and a, a, a quiz question that I give that is almost, almost 99% failed <laughs> is this, God, uh, what is it? God intends, there it is, God intends that our worship be given to him as a gift. And almost inevitably people say true. But the truth is, God expects our worship because he is God, he is master, and as servants, as slaves, he is due our worship. Right? And so that kind of can rankle on us, but that's because we don't have a right view of God. And so go back and listen to the last 12 weeks of Sunday school and that will help. But the, the biblical role of a worshiper is to understand his position of servant and slave to the master. And then you've got words that have to do with the ritual, the more ceremonial side of religious participation, kind of more just what we do here, what the priests and the Levites did in the Old Testament. But what these help us understand is that worship is not a word that is defined at all by the, the songs that we sing on a Sunday. The song, a song together is worship, but worship is so much more than a song. Worship is not even defined by the entirety of our services together. We don't, we don't go to worship. We go to corporate worship, but you've been worshiping all week, worshiping something. So as Dr. Dan Block puts it, this is one of my favorite definitions. True worship involves reverential human acts of submission and homage before the divine sovereign in response to his gracious revelation of himself and in accord with his will. So worship, okay, 
is really a whole life submission of obedience and reverence to God, which is why Paul says in Revelations 12, uh, Revelation, Romans 12, 1, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies, a.k.a. your entire selves, as a living sacrifice to God, which is your reasonable service of worship. Because it's a whole life submission. But we also gather corporately on Sundays, and what we gather for is worship, acts of submission and homage before God together as a whole body. And so corporate worship then are those things that the church body does in response to God, who he is, what he's said. So what are some examples of that type of thing? Well, it's things like pray, things like give. It is singing, but it is communion, and it is baptism, and it is fellowship with one another and the many, many other one another's. And it is church discipline. Isn't that wild? That's worship, though, because God says it. He reveals that we ought to do it. And so in our submission and in our homage to him as divine king, we say we will do it. And that's part of worship. And so corporate worship does not start with that first guitar chord. All right? It doesn't start with that first synth pad sound. It starts when you arrive and you engage the first brother or sister out in the parking lot. That's the start of your corporate gathered worship. And it continues through the prayer and the readings and the giving and the songs and the preaching, and it ends when you get in your car and you drive home. And so hopefully we've accomplished the first step here for you to understand both worship as a whole and music, corporate singing specifically. But the second step would be this, to prepare. I want you to think less like this. I woke up, it's Sunday morning, I got to go to worship. And I want you to think more, ah, it's Monday morning. I'm going to be heading to worship in about six days, and so I'm going to live like it. And I think this involves two things. One is worship during the week. You don't come and perform religious acts of worship on Sunday when you've been living for yourself or for the world all through the week. That's called idolatry and hypocrisy. All right, God has something to say about that to the Israelites in Amos 5, 23, 24. He says, he says, put yourself in these shoes. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sound of your harps or guitars or pianos. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. See, God says, I want you to live like a believer. Don't take my name in vain. Live like a believer and then bring me your religious acts and they'll mean something. So their ceremonial acts were disgusting to him because their lives weren't submitted to him in worship and service. And so we need to prepare for Sundays for singing together by worshiping during the week. Otherwise, God will say, take your songs away from me. And the second thing is that you consecrate yourself prior to gathering. We need to confess our sin before approaching the holy God together. And yes, I am fully on board. Jesus' blood covers us entirely and purifies us from sin and its consequences. And yet we also know that we need to confess our sin regularly and seek that full restoration and, and fellowship there with the Lord. But it seems like often it's so easy to just kind of come into gathered worship with the, the muck and filth of a life of worshiping other things and unconfessed sin and just, and just think that we just, just come 
and just start singing to God. But we forget that God is the holy one who says, be holy as I am holy. All right, so there's an old, there's an old uh, praise chorus that says, come just as you are to worship. You know that one? It's too old for most of you. That's a lie. You come just as you are to be saved. I don't care what you were doing yesterday. If you want to repent right now and put your faith in Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection, and say, Lord, I repent of those things and I ask you to save me and bring me into your family, then that can happen. But you cannot just come with with unconfessed patterns of sin and a life lived for yourself Monday through Saturday and think, I'm just going to sing some songs and I'm just going to give. Because God says, take, those, take, take away from me the noise of your songs. This is why Paul exhorts the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11. He's talking about corporate worship. He's talking about the Lord's table. And he says, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, consecrate himself, confess prior to participation And in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and the drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. It's so serious that for this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep or are dead. And so we worship during the week and we need to consecrate ourselves before corporate worship. And none of this requires perfection, else none of us could come. But we demonstrate process and progress and engagement with that. We can seek to be faithful during the week and we can seek to deal with our sin on a regular basis. This is important. Our perfection is in Christ. Our justification is in Christ. Our perfection is in Christ, but our preparation is our task. We don't say, I'm perfect in Christ and so I just live however I want and then I come and I sing and participate and, well, but my perfection is in Christ. No, we have to prepare for who we come to engage with. So now we understand, we know how to prepare, and the final step for your role is very simple. It's participate. There's a reason that it's called corporate worship is because we are, as a church family, together, doing something. But many in our culture have turned corporate worship into a spectator sport, and we desire that that not be the case for you. We don't want to turn worship into an event that you attend and watched as opposed to a gathering that you participate in. You need to participate, and that influences some of the choices of what we do. This is why we have scripture readings where we read together, because we want you to engage with God's word. This is why we pray, not just so you can check out and take a quick nap, but so that you can actually connect your hearts to what is being prayed and pray with the leader, with the pastor. This is why we allow times for confession, for response, for contemplation in your own, so that you can engage with God as a people. Frankly, this is why our lighting is the way it is. Because it's corporate worship, and we want to do it together, and it's kind of hard to do it together if it's so dark that you can't even see the person next to you, much less across the row. So this is a deliberate choice. It's the same with the volume. We are blessed with sound men who, who seek to walk that line of, okay, we want the, 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 the volume of the music to be helpful to you, to give you a firm foundation of music upon which to stand and lift your voices, but we don't want to overpower you. We don't want to make you think it's just, you know, me and 
the guy up there with a microphone, or even I can't even hear myself because all I hear is them, right? We don't want to do that because we want, we want you to hear one another because it's corporate worship. So it's very deliberate. And we do that because your engagement is of great importance. I encourage you all to understand that as part of the church body that has gathered for worship, your role on a Sunday morning is to wholeheartedly participate in each aspect. If the Lord tells us to give, how do you do that? If the Lord tells you to observe the Lord's Supper, how do you do that? Be wholehearted about it. If the Lord tells you to sing, how do you do that? This is what we've been covering. First, you have to actually sing, right? You can't obey by keeping your mouth shut. It just doesn't happen. You can't just sing in your heart. But on top of that, you have to be filled with the Spirit during the week and then sing when we gather. And we sing for God's sake, for each other's sake, for our own sake, and for the unbeliever's sake. And whether you sing well or not, we sing. Whatever is happening in the life of the body here, engage with it. This is for you to participate, not to check out. It's a good time to remind you that there's lots of questions even now uh, and, and you know, rabbit trails that we could go down in terms of even just some of the physical expressiveness that, is, that, is, that we see in the Bible and how is that managed and brought out and integrated. And <clears throat> on June 13th of 2021, I taught a Sunday school class that worked through all of that. Okay, June 13th, 2021, if you want to go back and, okay, what do we do about clapping? What is this hand-raising thing? What is, what is it to bow? What is it all that? Like, that's, that's there, okay? So you can go back and look at that. But God, God says something about those things, and so we want to we deal carefully with that. But the last thing is that it's crucial to understand here that this is a duty of a servant to a master, but it is a delight of a child to a father. This is a responsibility of a slave to a master, but it is a privilege of a kingdom citizen to his king, to her king. And it's a responsibility and a privilege because Jesus bought this for you. Remember, unredeemed, your songs don't get past those wood beams up there. Without the work of Christ, your songs do not get past the ceiling. But in Christ, because of his crucifixion and resurrection, this, this ministry and song and, and everything else that we've just touched on is possible for you. That's incredible. If you've repented of your sins and placed your faith in him and his righteousness on your behalf, then, then think about this. You can sing and God Almighty hears you. We can sing and watch each other be convicted and encouraged. We can sing and our souls will be affected. And we can sing and the unbeliever can be transformed because of what Jesus did. What a joy and a privilege to gather for corporate worship. I, I hope and pray that this helps you understand the depth of this idea a little bit better and you'll be able to prepare for it even all the better and that you'll participate all the more fully in the weeks ahead. If you're, if you're um, a visitor, I'm sorry. I hope it was still helpful. <laughs> Hopefully this will help you engage with wherever your home church is. And if you, if you do not have a home church in the area, we'd love to have you back as well here. <clears throat> 
It's been sweet for me to reflect on all that Jesus has made available for us in song, in singing together, corporate worship as a whole. And it's important to remember that he makes this available through his atoning sacrifice and through his resurrection.